Welcome to the Who, What, Why podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sheckman. We are living in a time of crisis on our streets that's unlike any we've ever seen before. A crisis that's not only affecting those in the grip of addiction, but also rippling out, impacting our communities, our cities, and our collective quality of life. This is a crisis fueled by powerful synthetic drugs, exacerbated by homelessness and magnified by its sheer scope. My guest, Sam Quinones, a seasoned journalist and author of the award-winning books The Least of Us and Dreamland, has been on the ground witnessing firsthand the evolution of this crisis and the systemic failures that have allowed it to spiral out of control. In his recent article in The Atlantic, he argues that our current approach to drug addiction, which leans towards tolerance until users volunteer for treatment, is failing. But this is not just about addicts. This is about our communities, our cities, and the very fabric of our society. The ever-increasing scope of this crisis is eroding the quality of life in many of our cities. The addicts and the users are not the only victims. We all are. And here's the thing. We can't solve 21st century problems with a 20th century mindset. The power of these drugs and the changing times call for solutions that may have never been tried before. The old ways will not work. The old sympathies don't solve the problems. And it's time for a new approach. And today we're going to talk about this uncharted territory of America's drug addiction crisis with Sam Quinones. It is my pleasure to welcome Sam back to the Who, What, Why podcast. Sam, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you again, Jeff. Thanks very much. Well, it is indeed great to have you here. Before we talk about solutions and, and, and how we got here, talk for a bit, and, and you and I have talked a little bit about this in the past with respect to the least of us, talk a little bit about these drugs, how powerful they are, and why it really changes the whole landscape of this conversation. Sure, and I think that's, that, that is the crucial point, that, that what, what we see now are, are two drugs, synthetic drugs made only with chemicals, no plants involved, being um, produced in quantities that are really unprecedented. Both of these drugs are now effectively uh, nationwide uh, produced uh, almost entirely by by um, the the Mexican trafficking world, uh, mostly on the western side uh, of Mexico. Uh, fentanyl and methamphetamine are some of the two most powerful drugs um, we've ever seen. Certainly, fentanyl is the deadliest we've ever seen on our on our street. Methamphetamine, in the potency that it's being made, is uh, transforming. Um, um, uh, the drug world into places of, of just life, uh, mental illness and uh, symptoms of schizophrenia that are really uh, um, scary to, to, to behold. All of this, I think, is a function of supply and the ability of traffickers in Mexico to produce the quantities that they are uh, producing now. And, and that is made possible largely because they have access to several shipping ports, which they control enough to get um, uh, almost unlimited access to ingredients, uh, chemical ingredients from the world chemical markets, mostly from China. Uh, they come in through these ports um, and uh, shipping ports, but also the airport of Mexico City, where you get uh, quantities of, of these ingredients that allow them to make these drugs all year round and in the quantities that they are, that we are seeing now and, and also in the potency 
that we're seeing now. And because the supply is so unrelenting, it's really kind of a new high tide of drugs. What you're also finding is that in, in some cases, but certainly in the case of methamphetamine, I think, by and large, the, the drugs are not, the meth is not being cut to any substantial degree because drug dealers on the street know that they can get it anywhere. There's no need to cut it to extend the life of the supply that you have because you can you, they can get it uh, pretty much pretty much anywhere. So you're finding um, enormous problems connected with um, the lethality of fentanyl, the the mind mangling nature of, of methamphetamine. Of course, this is also reflecting, as you said a little bit ago in in our um these are major drivers in our homeless problem our mental illness problem they they tend to keep they tend they they very clearly tend to to make some people homeless but the bigger problem probably is that no matter what the reason is that you're homeless the supplies of these drugs are so so plentiful that um, they, they serve to keep you homeless, no matter what the original reason was that you you wound up on the street. And the nature of this is such that that the normal response of compassion, of harm reduction, really just doesn't address the depth of of how powerful these drugs are. I think the one of the reasons for that is because the 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 drugs themselves do a masterful job of what most drugs will abuse do, which is to kind of blunt or squelch or redirect or hijack our basic uh, um, instincts for self-preservation, right? So you find people on the street, uh, Tet and Cam is a perfect example of this, I think, uh, frankly, where you're finding people living in squalor, filth, in horrible daily violence, um, and yet, uh, over and over, and, uh, uh, outreach workers, uh, public health folks, uh, cops, public paramedics will tell you that folks uh, uh, routinely re- uh, refuse uh, treatment. They refuse housing, um, and 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 therefore, what it means is that when they do that, our our natural tendency is well, they're not ready for treatment. The problem is. With these drugs on the street, people, it really defies logic to think that folks will find readiness for treatment on the street before the meth drives them mad and fentanyl kills them. That's the key, crucial thing. So, so waiting for people to develop a readiness for treatment on the street is a very, very uh, dicey proposition and frequently um, leads to... Um, I think death, basically. Uh, the rock bottom now is, is, is death. And so what, what this is really calling on us to do is to rethink this because these drugs change everything. As I was saying on the street, fentanyl changes everything. I think the same is true, frankly, of the supplies of potent meth that we're seeing on the street as well. They change everything. Everything we ever thought about uh, drug smuggling and profit, but also use, addiction, overdose, treatment, et cetera. We have to rethink a lot of this stuff because these drugs are, are not like any others we've ever seen on our, on our street. And I do believe that there's no such thing now as a minor drug possession case. When you have a, a person who's got a, a piece of foil and a straw and a pill containing fentanyl, that's not the same as a baggie of marijuana 20 years ago. That person is about to kill himself. And that's, again, why we, I think we need to really rethink a lot of this stuff. 
and, and, and come up with some new ideas. And when we talk about things like safe injection sites in the context of what you're talking about, there's a certain absurdity to it, it seems. Well, you know, I have not studied them enough to, 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 to give you my kind of reporters, uh, 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 not, not opinion, but, you know, kind of data on what I've, I've found. I will say this. One of the problems with fentanyl that, that calls into question the, the effectiveness of, of those sites is that fentanyl is, a, first of all, it's a great anesthetic. Uh, used in operating rooms for 60, 70 years, very, very effectively, a wonderful, wonderful surgical drug. The reason it's, one of the reasons it's so good is because it takes you in and out of anesthesia very quickly. And so you, boom, you're in, then you're, then you're out. And so you're not doped up for hours like with morphine. But that's the problem of, of fentanyl when it comes to the street, because now on the street, as a user, you are, you're having to use over and over again all day long to keep the withdrawal symptoms away. Unlike heroin, which if you use it, you, you would you'd be using twice, three times a day. Now with fentanyl, you have to use six, seven, eight times a day. What that means is that you kind of have to live near the safe injection site uh, uh, as you develop your tolerance for, for, for fentanyl. You are going in there over and over and over again. The other problem that I think those sites have, and again, I'm not necessarily saying that we shouldn't try them. I'm just saying that, that it seems to me that fentanyl, again, requires us to rethink some of these ideas. And one of the other things I think is to suggest that because we have revived someone with uh, naloxone, the antidote to opioid uh, overdose while in a site, or because we have allowed them to use without dying that that, uh, from fentanyl, that that means we've saved their lives. And that is not the case. Um, uh, you have revised them. You are saving their life temporarily. On the other hand, the longer those people continue to use fentanyl, there's a saying on the street too that there's no such thing as a long-term fentanyl addict. They're all going to die. So the the crucial issue is how can we use those sites to to not just allow them to continue to use, but to find ways of of, of with some with fairly rapidly getting them into treatment somewhere and treatment where they probably can't leave because very, very quickly as soon as they're in treatment, the cravings are so intense that frequently people bolt and leave. Um, Now there are ways of of, of preventing that, but um, I I think that these are a couple of the ideas that make safe injection sites something that we, we have to, again, do some careful thinking about. And one of the things that you talk about in the Atlantic piece, and we're starting to see it a little bit in, in San Francisco, and it's, it's been tried in some other cities that you talk about, is using law enforcement, using our jails as part of the process. Talk about that. Well, first of all, let me say this, that law enforcement should always be um, a part of this solution. We got away from that largely because we think, well, we thought, well, the drug war didn't work. And so, therefore, law enforcement has no role to play when it comes to drugs, drug, drug uh, interdiction, drug treatment, et cetera, et cetera, all that. And my, my response to that is, is that seems crazy because the, the reason we had trouble with the, with, with the drug war and law enforcement is not because we use law enforcement, it's because we only use law enforcement. And I believe that a, an appropriate response to addiction 
particularly the way it's ravaging our communities now, is an entire community response. That there is no part of the community that's, that says, well, we, know, we should be sidelined. And certainly, without a doubt, not law enforcement. They have a crucial role in many, many ways. But one of the things that I think fentanyl and meth and these potent supplies, unrelenting supplies we're seeing now, uh, makes uh, a requirement of is that we use the time in jail uh, better. In fact, jail, uh, it's showing in other parts of the country, not so much in California, I would say, uh, or the West Coast, but uh, where we're still getting over this, this aversion to law enforcement, which I think we would very quickly be healthy to do um, in, in this issue. But in other parts of the country, in the Midwest, where they've been asked a lot longer with regard to the opioid epidemic, we're seeing experiments with using jail as a place of recovery. So what, what happens then is that people get into jail or arrested. You have to use arrest. Yes, absolutely. You have to use arrest. While they're there, they're, they detox. That means they get a break from the drug. They get the drug out of their system. And what happens slowly, sometimes slowly, sometimes a little bit more quickly, but it takes some time, there's no doubt, is that people begin to think more clearly. So the readiness for treatment can more more easily be developed when you're away from the dope for a while, and that's what you see happening in a lot in these jails where people are, where they're trying where they're trying new new things. And this is an experimental thing. It's been only I'd say six eight years old that, that the, the jails I'm aware of have been been doing this. But once you do that, see, jail provides that essential thing. It's a place where you can go to get away from the street, yet you cannot leave. Once the dope tells you that you absolutely must, you get over a couple of those humps, you get a, a, a kind of a brain clearing, a brain healing, a brain defogging. And then all of a sudden people kind of view their lives a little bit more differently and they view the wreckage of what they've created of their, of their lives. And, and then a growth, the growth of readiness for treatment. And then a lot of these pot, these jails, have been creating recovery pods, pods where people are all about their recovery. So you're waking up in the morning, eight in the morning, you're making your bed, you're in classes most of the day, you are in 12-step uh, meetings, there's uh, social workers sign you up for Medicaid, and uh, so you have uh, uh, health insurance once you leave. There's actually a jail that spends a lot of time preparing people for what happens when they actually leave, which is a radical idea. Most jails have not, in my, my experience, done much thinking about that uh, at, at all. There's, there's uh, pods where the, the pods are governed by very strict account, rules of accountability. So there's no drugs. In many jails, there are drugs fairly, with some com, fairly commonly. Uh, but in these, these pods, they don't, they, it's, it's not the case. Uh, you find um, uh, they sign people up for uh, medically assisted treatment, that kind of medicine that can help people overcome the cravings. Uh, that will that accompanies opioid overdose, particularly when you get out on the street. And then, very importantly, I think in all of this, there is a continuum of care on the outside that has developed. Certainly, in the county that I read about in the piece, and I've written about in in, in my book, The Least of Us, uh, in Kentucky, where you have a whole array of services uh, uh, available um, on on the outside once somebody. Leaves. Again, the idea that a jail should be preparing some thinking about how to make it easier for that person to succeed once that person leaves jail 
is a radical idea for, for America. But the, the thing is that the drugs are now making this almost a requirement. I began following the, the jail in Kenton County about seven, eight years ago when it first opened. And I thought, that's a good idea. That's great. I'll continue to follow it, see how it goes, you know. Now with fentanyl and meth on the streets, I think it's an essential idea because you need some place to go to get away from the dope so you can break from it, so you can reset your life. And, and jail, we've never treated jail like this, but, but jails in the, in the Midwest are actually showing that this is what, what can happen. One of the issues that we're hearing already in San Francisco where there has been some effort to, to begin to arrest not only the dealers but the addicts themselves is the civil liberties issue. Well, I mean, I think there is a, there's a, a valid concern when it comes to that. Um, I would say, though, that, that first of all, when it comes to people who are dealing fentanyl, I actually, um, when it comes to addicts on the street, that's a, one thing. But when it comes to people dealing fentanyl, and almost everybody's dealing fentanyl, whether they know it or not these days, um, I think that is kind of a no-brainer. I mean, you have to arrest those people. You have to make sure that they are not, this is, a, this is a, a, a substance that is very much, selling fentanyl is very much akin to firing a gun into a crowd. You know you're going to hurt somebody when you do it. You know what you're doing is going to hurt somebody. You know there's fentanyl in what you're selling. And, and you most likely will kill somebody. And it, to me, it, it does not, that does not smack of a misdemeanor. You know what I mean? It, it, it feels very much more serious uh, that that and that the problem is that once people understand that you're not taking that seriously. And I think this is the case in some cities, uh, maybe in San Francisco for a while, um, where you are finding people are saying, well, nothing's going to happen to me. Well, that breeds more people who are who suggest that who, who will believe, yeah, I'll go get into that business because nothing is going to happen uh, to me. The other point, though, is that frequently people are selling to support their own habits. Well, those are exactly the kind of people who are doing this extraordinarily risky behavior to support their own. Those are exactly the kind of people that may, may benefit from being off the street and being in treatment and being a place where they can't go. I mean, those people are going to die. So either way you look at it, the sale of fentanyl is, to me, um, hard to make the argument you should ever treat it as a minor thing. Again, there's no such thing anymore with fentanyl and meth on the street. I don't believe there's any such thing really as a minor drug charge because it's all going to damage people's brains almost, most, perhaps irreparably, but certainly for the semi-permanently with methamphetamine nowadays. But then also, uh, you know, with fentanyl, that's going to kill them. And so it's, it's hard to make the argument that somehow we should be treating this as a, as a minor minor thing. It's not. Every sale of fentanyl is a major, a major, uh, uh, I think, criminal event. And when you hear talk about decriminalization of all of this, talk about your reaction to that and, and, and why you think it is so misguided. Well, I think that decriminalization comes from a good place. It comes from this idea like, you know, this is a libertarian kind of idea, and, that's some, and there's a certain amount of that that I kind of agree with. The problem is that when you decriminalize drugs that are this potent and this prevalent, that it's, again, as I say, it's kind of a new high tide of drugs, not an, a wave of drugs, a new high tide of these, these things, where they're almost, in, in the case of methamphetamine, virtually free, right? In many, many cases, I was listening to a video where, where I was saying, I don't know what it costs anymore because it's free. You know, for me, I get it free almost. 
you know, it's, it, it takes understanding of brain chemistry, it seems to me, to understand why um, decriminalizing the sale of, 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 of these drugs is, um, is a, a really, really bad uh, idea. You need some kind of protection. People, the, they are too addictive. They are too uh, overwhelming to our brain uh, chemistry. And also, the more you allow it to be decriminalized in fact or in practice, the, again, the more supply. This is about supply creating demand. This is not about demand creating supply demand is what create i'm sorry supply is what creates this and then you get the demand that follows and after that's kind of a a a a, a cycle and so the idea that somehow we can kind of treat our way out of it without dealing with the issue of supply is first of all an enormous enormous uh, 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 task that i don't believe we have either budget or political will uh, for number one, but also those drugs will continue to create demand, and so we will in, be in this kind of treadmill that we'll never get off of. I think we really need to understand that we have to say, say, selling these drugs, particular, you know, these two in particular, is simply, you know, beyond the pale. We cannot have people uh, doing that, and when we begin to do that, then all of a sudden. Supply reduction is harm reduction, you know, so you get fewer people out there with access to it. That is a good, good, good thing. There are other things that must be done. This is not the only, I'm, I'm not trying to say this is what we, the only thing we need to do. There's, there's a whole community response. As I said, we've gone through periods where we've only used one, one response to an immensely complex uh, uh, thing that originates in the, in the brain chemistry of each individual and trying one response to any of this is a, is a, is, is, is a problem. But that's, that's my point that we've got these other aspects of our community that we have sidelined because we think, Oh, the drug war was bad. You know, well, no, the drug war to the extent it didn't work, didn't work because, not because we tried law enforcement, used law enforcement, but as I said, because we only, tried law enforcement or used law enforcement. There's, we, there are many tools that we need to use them all. And without a doubt, uh, law enforcement is, is very near the top, in fact, but not alone. Why has it been so difficult, in your opinion, to make those that, that argue for compassion and that make the compassion argument, why has it been so difficult to get them to understand how awful these drugs are as you've been explaining um i just think yeah i mean i'm i'm willing to be you know well-intentioned about this and understand that people have different perspectives and they come from different um parts of, of life and they've seen certain things and there's a lot of reasons why you might look at the drug war and, and say yeah that's bad so we should never go anywhere near that ever ever again um uh i think in its worst forms, what you're describing, I mean, there's a lot of very well-intentioned people, very compassionate people, and I don't mean to be, I'm not, not interested in sitting up here and passing judgment like mm -hmm. this. On the other hand, there are people, I think, who do get a lot of their own self-worth from feeling that they are doing the noble thing, the compassionate thing. And the ideas that are being tried now are ideas that were really formulated 
before fentanyl and meth took over in the potency and the prevalence with which you, we now find them on the streets of America. So again, this, this is something I believe that we really need to rethink uh, because the drugs are, have changed in ways that we did not imagine and we've never seen before. So uh, it's hard for me to, I have to say, to look at a street, a sentence cabin, rather a street, you know, community of drug users and say, you know, that's a compassionate idea that, that those folks be allowed to, to live on the street. I believe that tent encampments now, it's my, I would say my hunch, let's say, the tent encampments have become um, part of the problem because people refuse treatment in those tent encampments because they know they have a kind of community where everybody knows their nickname, right? And, and they can get their dope pretty easily, right? And so why leave that? It's kind of good feeling to be in part of that. Uh, I think, um, and, but then of course the, the effect is to leave people in a situation of utter squalor, frequently women pimped out, a lot of violence, a lot of public health disaster for the community at large, uh, not to mention uh, a, a very uh, inviting place for for people to involve to to get involved in a, a, a wide range of criminal activity. The other question is whether or not we even have the jail capacity in some of our cities today to deal with this. Well, here's the thing: we may not, we may not. The, but the point is not to say, but because we don't have that, let's just not try anything. I think what the idea is that once you begin to try new ways of doing things that other counties have actually shown work, right, that then you begin to nibble away at the problem and the problem becomes more manageable as you provide, as jail becomes a place of positive, productive progress, right, then all of a sudden it takes away from some of the negativity perhaps that it was creating by simply being a place where people go to vegetate because truthfully jails in America for the forever really, I think have been a symbol of the throw away the key idea, just throw them there and they vegetate for nine months and then forget about it. Right. And then they leave and they go off and they do their thing and they come back six months later and go, you again, you know, but once it stops being so much that, at least for some people, Little by little by little, problems become more manageable. People come, what they found in some of these counties is that people come out of the woodwork to be a volunteer because they see something as being part of a solution rather than right now, why should I do anything? You know, nothing, nothing's working. Well, maybe this might work. So maybe I'll, 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 I'll try uh, doing this. This is absolutely what's happened in the counties that, that I've been to, certainly the county in Kentucky that I've written so much. Uh, about you have people who are adding their energies and their talents and and um, that, that were you know not known they were there they were part of the society not doing any of that but now they see that maybe jail is actually part of the a good part of the the solution let's try that that's not a bad idea you know so the little steps doesn't matter if you have you know ten beds in a jail that is trying this right. It's the little steps that add up that matter in the long run, not trying it. The, the real damaging thing would be to say, well, we can't do anything, 
So even though we only have, we, you know, why try with 10 beds? What's the point of that? Well, the point of that is very, very important, right? You can, you begin to do that and little by little by little people see that this can work. And of course, this is a, an experiment. You know, the, the people are trying ideas. Some things work, some things don't work. It's not that anyone has a, a monopoly on 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 yeah then these these new ideas everyone's trying to figure it all out the point is though the larger point as i was trying to make in that story is that we don't get anywhere as long as we say certain things we're not going to try because we think they didn't work in the past in fact they did work to some degree but the problem was we used as i said with law enforcement we use only law enforcement and you should never use only one thing when you're dealing with issues developed in our very, very complex uh, and very individualized, obviously, uh, brain chemistry. And finally, Sam, how do you see this playing out? I mean, even to the extent that we, we do this experimentation and and we have some success with it, we're, we're not having a whole lot of success on the interdiction front. There is, as you said at the very outset of this conversation, a supply that keeps growing and growing and growing. Where does this go? Well, that is a problem. I'm just, I guess I, I come down on the idea that we try things um, and we keep trying them, you know, and we don't let uh, a failure get us, get us down. We don't let that be a setback. And I see people across the country doing this, by the way. I mean, I think people are, uh, people, you know, you, you can do one, if you can try or you can fail. I mean, you can try or you can give up. And I think there's a lot of Americans out there that are, that are not uh, giving up. And I think in the long run, that's how you win. It, it is, it seems very daunting. I will completely agree with you. But, but the worst would be to give up, throw up your hands and say, oh, well, there's no point. To, to any of any of this. I think that sm- that's what we did with our gun issue. No, there's nothing we can do about these assault weapons. Oh my God, we can't do anything. So we're not going to do, we're not going to try uh, anything. And I, I think that, that it's the small steps that get us there. It's, it's childish and completely unrealistic to think that, well, we've got one solution or a few solutions and, um, and uh, they, they alone will, will solve the problem and everything else we shouldn't even try. I just think that's crazy, but that's kind of where we are in a lot of cities in America, frankly, where we're saying, well, no, jail has no role. Arrest has no role, even though people are selling a poison that will absolutely kill most of the people who use it immediately or within, with very quickly. And in the long run, it'll kill everybody who uses it, you know? Then, well, forget it. We should not, uh, you know, that nothing to be done. What can we do? I think that's a damaging idea. And again, it gets back to the uh, whole idea of this has got to be a community response. And to say that something as fundamental and as absolutely uh, powerful as law enforcement should not be used or should be sidelined, I just think that's, that's part of the problem. And that's crazy. And, and we can... Uh, that, that is a huge uh, 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 institution that absolutely has to be employed in many, many ways that we're not using it now. Sam Quinones, his article currently appears in The Atlantic. His book is The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. 
Sam, I thank you so very much for spending time with us here today on the Who, What, Why podcast. I appreciate the interest, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening and joining us here on the Who, What, Why podcast. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.